This episode is brought to you by Rad Dudes Who Love Nature. Billy Brown, I'm sitting here with... I'm Tony Crosdale. That's Tony Crosdale, and we've got a guest. Uh, Tykee James. I like to refer to him as President Tykee James, because we all know he's going to be president someday. Tony, do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. And so basically, we have him on the show so that in the future, even if no one listens to this now, <laughs> when people research Tykee, they'll see he was on this show... And then we'll be popular in like 20 <laughs> years. We'll see if it works. We got, we got some time. We got some time, but I'm telling you. Um, there's a Tacky's my retirement plan. What, is he going to support you? He's going to I can easily, I could, you know, I could appoint you to a position in the White House. Urban or, ecologist. Yeah, urban, urban ecologist for the interior. Uh, Chief of staff, something like that. There you go. All right, so, um, you know, we're new, but we still have some early comments on episode one. Um, Nikolai Alexandrescu of Romania says this is the best podcast since the Badgers of Bucharest. High praise, I think. Um, well, we now positive. Um, I will say that um, <clears throat> Tiago Verdum um, says that he really thinks that the Cafe Bars de Sadaji out of Sao Paulo um, is a little bit better. Okay. So we got, we got, you know, we're not quite there. We're new. I mean, this is part of the punk ethos, you know, like we, we, we start playing and we learn our instruments later. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we're getting started and I think we're going to get better as we go. Um, this episode is also, I think, going to be, I think, clocking about twice as long as the first one. Because um, we figure if you like episode one at 25 minutes, you're really going to like episode two at like 50 minutes. And you're just going to go crazy over episode six at like 800 minutes. Um, so that's the plan. Uh, hey, if you got more comments, of course, you can keep sending them to urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. Um, and look us uh, up on Facebook. We got, we're going to be on, by the time you hear this, we will be on all social media worth using. Um, and you'll already know about that because it'll be linked to on our website. Um, and we are, the, the theme of, of this episode um, is. Uh, is critters or creatures that you don't know are there, that no one thinks are there, or no one knew were there. Um, so sort of, we went bigger go home in the first episode. Yeah. And now it's more like understated animals, but are cool in certain contexts. We've gone from the longest snakes in the world and whales to insects you need to look at under a dissecting microscope to identify them. And really small snakes and nocturnal squirrels that no one knows are there. So yeah, we're we're going small, um, showing our range really. Uh, and so what we'll start off with um, is a piece. Actually, the first thing we recorded for the podcast back in the fall. Um, and what happened is I was at an at a table. I was at a sorry. I was at Bug Fest 
at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, a museum here, and research institution. Um, and I ran into, ran into a young woman, a curatorial assistant there, um, who was tabling and talking about her project. Uh, I ended up writing an article about it for Grid Magazine. Um, I took along, well, I didn't take along, I took my phone so I could record it. Um, and so I recorded this piece with Issa Betancourt. Um, and we hope you enjoy it. My name is Issa Betancourt, and I am a curatorial assistant of entomology here at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Drexel University. Whose idea was the Swan Fountain Project? Um, this, this was just an idea that I came up with when I was having lunch out in Logan Square. Spring of 2013. I really missed the sun during the winter, and so I was, I'd been going outside and was thinking, like, what, like, what kind of insect project can I do? Um, like, what can I, what can I do that would bring me outside? Because I wanted, I missed doing field work working here at the academy with the collection. And so one day I was walking by the fountain and I saw an insect float by, and that gave me the idea, like, what else is in here? Because you think sometimes you see insects in your swimming pools, and I thought, oh, like. What can we find? We are standing here next to Logan, in Logan Square, next to Swan Fountain in Center City, Philadelphia. This is my field site. It's right across from the Academy of Natural Sciences, which is where I work, up in the entomology department. And so every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, at around lunchtime, usually between like 12.30 and 2 o'clock, I'll come out here with my gear, my nets, my boots, my jar of ethanol, and I'll just take a step into the fountain and see what I find, what kind of insects I find right here in Center City. Uh, so I have here with me a fish net that I borrowed from my fish at home. Fine mesh so I can catch as many insects as I possibly can when I enter into the fountain. And I'll, I'll add that we're surrounded by oh. like four lanes of traffic or so going around in a traffic circle around yeah. the park, which is a circle. Um, skyscrapers and, and sort of hotel buildings and old cathedrals and um, library, family court buildings, so all, all big urban buildings all around us. Um, although the park is a little, little, I don't know, oasis of greenery here. Yeah. Um, so with that, he's uh, going to head in and start netting stuff. Alright. All right. Every now and then I'll get an aquatic beetle or an aquatic um, crew bug that is swimming around underwater, but usually most of the things that I catch are drowning or dead. Now we're back in Issa's office. Do you know of any other um, fountain sampling projects like this elsewhere? No, not that I know of, but it's definitely like has a lot of potential, this project, um, to be done in other cities like New York and DC to see how things compare. There's perhaps. fountains a lot of places in the world. Um, yeah. So now we're looking at, at different vials, and Issa right now is, is picking the t today's haul out of the, the net and putting it into a, um, a small collecting jar full of alcohol. So today we have uh, honeybees, we have yellow jackets, a bumblebee, a bald-faced hornet, which is black and white and pretty big. Okay. Those bald-faced hornets, they'll make those huge... Um, paper nests that you see sometimes up in trees of different colors. Um, we have the European paper wasp at the bottom there, which is a wasp that has yellow antenna. See the yellow antenna? And then these ones up here are um, the eastern yellow jacket. They, you can see in contrast they're a little smaller and they have black antenna. Okay. 
So, huh. yeah, then we have lots of little things too, little parasitic wasps, little beetles. We got one aquatic beetle. Okay. Mm-hmm. So these are beetles that might be flying past from the school kill or from or from some body of water out that or in either direction. Okay. Yeah, exactly. All right. So, so yeah. while you're doing this, what, what is that itty bitty thing you just pulled out? We have an ant. It's kind of interesting when you when you get insects in there and they don't <laughs> have wings. But here's one that somehow ended up in there. Okay. I think it's actually trying to bite the forceps. Well, for that, it's going to get the capital punishment and it gets turned into the alcohol. Um, (laughs) Sorry, Ann. And so um, what are some of the cooler things that you've found in in your collections? Let me show you. Oh, okay, cool. So just for for people who can't see, because no one can see this but me and Isa, Isa just pulled out a um, rectangular wood, um, what do you call these things? We call them drawers. Drawers, okay, with a glass top and pinned um, insects inside. Yeah. We have some katydids. Okay. And what's cool about the katydids is that I didn't get any katydids last year in the fountain. So there's... Like but this year we that, are getting katydids. Yes, that's okay. a very interesting difference. And so these are big green insects that are, how would you describe them, kind of like crickets, kind of like grasshoppers? Uh-huh, but they okay. have very long antenna. And these ones are conehead katydids because their heads come to a little point. Okay. At the top. Sure, sure enough. We also have a cicada killer in here, which was a nice catch. Nice. And nice. a cicada killer is a large, it looks like a large wasp with, um, I think it's a black and yellow abdomen like uh-huh. lots of other wasps. Very okay. smooth, yes. We have a nice, pretty cuckoo wasp. Well, it's cool that we found one because one, they're just really pretty. <laughs> <laughs> and it's an insect that really, it, it's pretty common, but people don't notice them. Um, partially because they're very timid. Um, if you see one on a flower, it'll just, and it sees you, it'll just fly away. Okay. But also, another cool thing about them is that last year, when I collected some cuckoo wasps, we happened to have some experts in that area here in the department, and so I asked them if they could, if they could identify them, and they did, and we found that, it was, that they were a species that we didn't already have in the collection. Okay. So that was really awesome, because like I said, we have... Over 107,000 species here in our collection, and we found this one species that was not represented right here, on the f- like right in front of our steps at the academy. We also have these horntails, which are a type of sawfly, which is a very like big, robust um, sawfly. Sawflies are related to bees, wasps, and ants. And we found two of them this year. We didn't find any last year either. So that's what's really cool about this project. We can see what's different at different times of the year, how things change over the season, the rise and fall of different insects, and then we can also see how things change over time. The nice thing is that Swan Fountain has been around since 1923, and it'll be there for many more years probably. It's such an important part of Philadelphia. And that's very important for projects where people collect is the ability to replicate it to compare over time. So 10 years from now, someone can collect again and see how things have changed. You know how she said conehead candidates? I remember um, candidates. I just love that word. Yeah, yeah, everyone's wondering what Katie did. We were while we were listening to that, we were looking at, at pictures of cuckoo wasps. Maybe we'll include one on the the um, website. So you can see these are some really gorgeous little insects. Yeah. I'm feeling the sawflies. Like, have I've you seen the sawflies? You know, here's the thing. They're like these enormous ovipositors. I think as we call them. 
that just like look like these giant spikes. Wow. No, I, I read about that sawfly larvae look just a lot like caterpillars, and I know that they're really important prey for birds. Ah. Um, but like, so I've kind of been on the lookout for sawflies, um, but I really haven't seen any. And I was hoping when I was collecting this summer that I would come across some, and I didn't see any. So um, I really would like to see some sawflies. And the fact that like I spent a whole summer picking off bugs off leaves. And didn't find any sawflies, and the fact that they found them in the fountain in, you know. I mean, you, 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 I think you almost overstated the um, urban oasis. I mean, it's what, a couple polonia trees because of the historic value and, like, some, like, flowers and pots, basically. Well, polonia trees are, are commonly invasive. Are they invasive or just a trash, exotic you know, tree? In the, I don't know if you can call them invasive, especially in the context of the urban ecosystem, which is, you know, what we're here to discuss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, you know... But they're nothing special. It's like... Th- yeah, they're... They grow up along railroad yeah, lines. Yeah, the eastern, yeah. you know, the Asian tree that, um, you know, they're, they're quick. Um, they grow they grow really quick. And um, But I will say this, that um, a lot of these abandoned lots in the city, you know, it's mostly polonia mulberries, and... You know, I've seen lots of cool birds in a polonia tree, you know, and I've seen lots of cool birds feeding on mulberries, and, yeah. you know, it holds some value for migrating birds. It gives them cover. It keeps them safe from cats temporarily, and it provides them, you know, some insects are on them, they're feeding on, and... Way to work the cats into episode two, by the that, way. That's our whole goal. Yeah. Well, I was, so anyway, um, you know, so I don't know if you call them invasive, because it's to abandon lots. It's not like our native trees do are adapted for, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, compacted, you know, polluted soils. Um, but anyway, so this, this, the fact that sawflies are found in this, I mean, it's, it's a fountain in the middle of the, the heart of downtown. I mean, it's yeah. like a boulevard that's kind of styled after Paris yeah. and giant skyscrapers and big museums and very, very, very little greenery. Um, so it's, and, and I don't even think there are any dogwood trees. Taiki, do you have anything to say about dogwood trees? You know, dogwood trees are really special trees. They look really great whenever they bloom, but you know, one of the diagnostic ways, one of the ways you can tell it's a dogwood is by the bark. Insert, yeah, insert right. drum line there. You know, one of the things you said in What there kind of is, crickets um, would we be hearing right there? Would they be... No, sorry. No. <laughs> I don't even know. But uh, one of the things she said was uh, Oasis of Greenery. And like Tony said, there's not a lot of greenery, but I think one thing that's really important is um, the oasis of urban uh, wildlife there. And something that, you know, you're an ecologist and herb person. You know a lot about plants and insects. Um, but, you know, I, I think experts should do their expert work and has, have their expertise. But what I really like about what she's doing is that she's inspiring awareness to these uh, oasis of uh, urban wildlife. And that, yeah. you know, with that, you know, she can promote scientific literacy to the general public. What do you mention about Taiki? Taiki, how'd you and Tony meet? It was high school. I think it was a Tuesday. It was a dark and stormy Tuesday. <laughs> uh, how'd you guys meet? Uh, I was in my environmental studies uh, class, and one day he came in and offered a position to, or offered, like I think it was like eight open positions, AP, advanced placement. The elite. Yeah. Pop my collar. Um, an opportunity to basically learn and get paid, and what we'd be learning about is, uh, you know, the ecology of Philadelphia, urban wildlife, and uh, birding. Uh, we learn how to identify plants and animals and given it, you know, our own lecture on ecology. What is, was the program called? Docent program. The docent program. Well, it was the Cobbs Creek docent program, but now we've renamed ourselves Wild West Philly. WWP. 
It's Wild West Philly. All right. And so basically, Taiki would give tours of a park in West Philly, um, along with you know the group of other docents. Mm-hmm. We don't have a home base currently, yeah. Yeah. but the program itself, uh, if anything, is we've expanded our scope. We're, we're operating not just in Cal Street Park, but all over West Philadelphia. Yeah, and we have a lot of interaction with the general public, which I think is really good. Because, again, it speaks to how and we want to cultivate more scientific literacy, not and, only... And might, especially we have to a web people. presence now, the, web Wild West, the Wild West Philly. We will link org. to that on the website. It's also just a cool project because when you hear docent, I think of like someone who's retired and has a fanny pack. Um, and then... <laughs> Sorry. Oh, yeah. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. I um, went to a museum in D.C., and they were just like, oh, yeah, the docents are here. And I was like, oh, my God, Tony's here? And then, like, I saw, <laughs> and I saw you know, basically what you explained. I'm like, well, that's... That's nice. Yeah, that's... Uh, I'm surprised and a little disappointed. No, but here we got a bunch of teenagers who, like, argue about comics and, like... Oh, God, yeah. And, and you sort of have to try to limit how many times you're going to say the word John in, like, a sentence. Yeah, it um, is. It is very. Uh, and one of the days he's speaking to. But it's like perfect to, for what it is. It's yeah. perfect. And well, and Taiki um, aged out of the program, um, and like fine co- wine, and went to college. But so we, we more or less invented a position for him. Um, and we, he's the speaker of the general assembly at Temple University. Yeah. Is yes. That what it's called Temple Student Government. Temple's, you got it at Temple okay. University. It's very a, special. Temple's a cool spot. Um, they got kestrels breeding and. The church on the Lee Chorus Walk. Yeah. I think I saw a kestrel because it definitely wasn't a morning dove that was moving like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, it was also going. Didn't hear it, but they and they. I remember writing an article about Temple because they did a neat uh, bird collision window collision project. Oh yeah, the um, we now have and people stare. So now I was working on that project. Are you talking about the realistic looking uh, hawks on the on parts of the buildings? No, those don't work apparently. No, this uh, what well, they was, work for people because people will stop and stare and take pictures. No, this was the uh, this was like so they've done different things like like nets in front of in front of buildings which yeah. apparently work well and you can take them down that through the migration season. Um, but they had a contest with design students yep. um, to design a, a a pattern you could put on a window. And so they, in one of the libraries, there's this like glass bridge between two buildings, which mm-hmm. is like a bird death trap. In, in between uh, Tuttleman and Paley Library. And so, like, there you go. Name drop. All right, right on. <laughs> They'll know you're legit. Um, and the, they put up, the design is like a musical staff with yeah. birds sitting on the staff. Which is really nice. Which is really, exactly. It's, it's really, really nice. Like, every time people walk by, like, you don't think that it's to stop birds from dying. You're just like, well, this is a nice little... Passing exactly like, a nice decorative element, um, but what it's really there for is that birds realize that that's actually a solid object and don't smack into it and die. Yeah, um, and yeah, it was crazy. Temple, it's kind of amazing to see in migration. You know, I found woodcock and um, oven birds and black and white warbler, um, common yellow throats. Black and white warbler is a single bird. <laughs> just so everyone knows, no, I don't. It just I know everyone at the table knows what that was, but just so all of our listeners everywhere, With the black and white ver- warbler unity. It's the warbler of unity. Yeah, it's the warbler of unity. It's the they warbler. It's the like, warbler that MLK's dream. Yeah, the white absolutely. warbler sings the Paul McCartney part. <laughs> the black warbler sings the Stevie Wonder. Sorry. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a wonderful. You need to hear the song. It's it's really breathtaking. So next up, we're gonna talk. We're gonna hear a piece that I recorded 
Um, because I, for whatever reason, got a, a bug in my bonnet about finding flying squirrels. Um, and flying squirrels, like, seem to me like some kind of really exotic thing. Because, um, like, they're squirrels and they fly. Um, but it turns out they're actually pretty common. Um, and I've read stuff saying that, you know, when they're studied, they're about as abundant as gray squirrels, which we think of as, like, the default squirrel. Mm. Um, but the thing is, they're nocturnal. So, you know, people aren't really walking around urban wooded parks at night very much, looking at wildlife, at least. Um, <laughs> so the it, you know, it, it was pretty simple once we tried to stake them out and actually see them. And so here is um, a piece about me and Gigi sitting in a park in West Philly in beach chairs at night, um, staking out a tree that we had been baiting with peanut butter. Because squirrels love peanut butter, because everybody loves peanut butter. So, we're here in Haddington Woods. I just spread peanut butter on a tree that I've been spreading peanut butter on for a few weeks now. The tree is a an old Norway maple that has um, a, a sort of a knot hole in it at about 10 feet up. Uh, and it's an old, old kind of gnarly tree. It's got a couple poison ivy vines, which of course I noticed after I picked it out to be the one to spread peanut butter on, which makes spreading peanut butter a little, a little dicey because you don't want to like you know grab onto the poison ivy. And the squirrels have been extremely enthusiastic about the peanut butter, judging by past visits, where you don't just they don't just eat the peanut butter, but then chew down the bark, um, which had peanut butter stuck to it. Last time we did this. We set a piece of cardboard we used to spread the peanut butter down on the ground, thinking we'd pick it up after our hike, which we did. But when we got back, they had also licked that clean. Um, so they really like peanut butter, which is understandable because peanut butter is fabulous. And this is at the edge of a wide uh, sort of dirt road heading back into Haddington Woods. We walked probably 100 yards in from the gate at the back of the parking lot. So this is not deep in the woods at all. Uh, and illuminated by the, the lights of a, of a football field behind us and, you know, hopefully the ambient noise and maybe behind us now you can hear the sounds of urban Philadelphia and Upper Derby at night. You got the L going behind us, you have planes going overhead, sirens. It is 5.31 p.m. Um, there's still a little bit of light in the western sky, but otherwise it's pretty dark. And um, we sat in our beach chairs about, I don't know, about 40 feet from the tree. Some tea and some thermoses, and we're going to wait and see what happens. It's 5.46. By now we've both seen something that looks like it's running around on the back side of the tree. And it's really cold. Okay, we definitely see it. We're watching. Oh, I just spooked it, I think, by talking, but it ran down back from higher up in the split of the tree where it was to eat the, one, like, what I think it was the first, well, a side patch of the peanut butter. Again, um, we definitely both saw it. A small, smaller than a gray squirrel, um, well, bigger than a chipmunk, uh, rode it and come down from the split of the tree to eat one of the patches of peanut butter. It is 5.47. It sort of ran up into the fork of the tree, and I think I saw it move. It, it's probably watching us. 
and waiting for us to go before it eats the peanut butter. I don't think it understands that the peanut butter is a bribe. And if it's going to eat the peanut butter, then it owes us a few more clean looks at it. I guess flying squirrels don't understand, I don't know, negotiations, exchanges. But we're going to work on this with the squirrels. Keep giving them peanut butter until they learn to like us. Because, you know, if they give, you give anything peanut butter enough, it'll learn to like you. So we're going to pack it up soon. I think we saw our squirrel. Um, this is definitely not some quiet, secluded spot that, like, deep in the woods, but there's definitely flying squirrels running around. So um, what I didn't record was the next trip I made um, with my daughter, who at the time was, like, almost three years old. And I decided this would be neat to, like, sit in the woods and stake out the tree again. Um, and I, it was, like, turning into a total disaster. I don't know. I, anyone who knows three-year-olds, you're almost three-year-olds, would have realized that, like, trying to get a three-year-old to sit still and be quiet at night in the woods was not going to work. Um, so, like, she kept getting up and, like, wanting to play with the stick and be like, Daddy, what's that? Daddy, what's that? And so, like, I was like, okay, this is not working. I gave up after, like, five minutes, ten minutes maybe. Um <laughs> She's like, oh, I think I hear a monster. I think I hear spooky wookies. Um, I think I hear owls. I'm like, no, honey, just be quiet. Be quiet. Oh, the whole point of this is that the first time we went out, we forgot a camera. All right. So second time we went out, um, I brought a camera. And then as I'm getting ready to go, figuring like, hey, it's a total waste of time. Not waste of time. It was a nice adventure. But like we weren't seeing the squirrels. I just put my flashlight up and down the trunk of the tree. And right there was the flying squirrel. Um, so the picture on the website is from that second expedition um, of a flying squirrel, the actual flying squirrel, which, again, I will point out, is nothing special because they're probably all over the wooded parks of Philadelphia and every other, you know, eastern major city. Um, I think in, they're probably all over the, the Pacific Northwest, too. Yeah, okay, so all <laughs> over the continent. And there are species of flying squirrels in Europe, too, um, that I at least, and probably elsewhere in the world that I haven't looked up, but... Uh, the point being that they're nocturnal, so people don't see them. But it's just sort of—I th I thought what I dug about it was that there's this whole, you know, there's this whole nocturnal set of animals out there that we just don't think about because we don't because it's like people don't go on night hikes in cities looking for critters usually. Yeah. Well, I heard that I need to look look up the sound um, and learn the sound better. I heard that if you learn their their little no, there's a little chitter they make. Yeah. And if you learn that, then the, you know, um, which I was, I've been remiss in doing that you, you can hear them pretty regularly. Yeah. No, I, I believe had, it. I had a ex-girlfriend who was, a did tree sitting like out in Oregon nice. to like prevent, you know, uh, logging and development. And she says that when you're on, you know, you're on a sit that the flying squirrels sometimes would like, would like crawl and like curl up in the crook of your neck. I don't know if this is true. Make friends with flying squirrels up in the trees? Yeah, they would just like come and get like warm like in your neck. You know? I was like, that sounds awesome, but I don't know if that's true. <laughs> so if anybody has ever had a flying squirrel snuggle up to them in the middle of the night, please write in and let us know. All right. Well, hey, we got a, we got a mission for some of you tree sitters out there. Um, better yet, if you're an urban tree sitter and want to smear yourself with peanut butter mm. and hang out in a tree... Um, and see what flying squirrels come by. Hey, it's a project. 
You know, um, one of the things I liked about this was uh, the the peanut butter involved with it. Um, <laughs> in your recording, you, you what you, brand was it? Oh yeah, that's a good. It was like Safeway generic. All it right. was like the ch- I just well, maybe that's to... why the negotiation didn't work. The, maybe not Safeway. The, was, the squirrel um, knew like, oh man, this is the good stuff. Where's Where's Jeff? Not like, Safeway. Um, super fresh. I'm sorry, super fresh. Wow. Yeah, um, yeah. That's definitely what drove the squirrel away. Like uh, the don't... squirrel kept hitting it though. Like it wasn't like the squirrel was like, oh, this is bad. I'm not going to eat it. Yeah. Like we spent like for for like a couple weeks, well, a month there. I was like, not every day, but like a couple times a week, I'd ride my bike out there and like smear peanut butter on the same spot in the same tree. You know, and then like, and so it, it apparently loved the peanut butter, even if was it was it, generic peanut butter. Was it really high on the tree? It was about as high as I could reach. So, so let's call that seven about, or eight. Yeah, feet. seven or eight feet. Um, so we are gonna now switch topics completely, or not completely. So like from some sort of like on the DL wildlife to another. Um, I've developed a small obsession with Kirtland snakes. Kirtland snake is a species, or call it was, I mean, it's still around, but it's a species of what are called, um, of sort of the Midwest, but also of something called Prairie Peninsula, um, which was, I say was, um, was a type of habitat that extended into Pennsylvania, western PA, um, that, you know, you think of Pennsylvania as woods, I mean, it means Penn's woods. Uh, but in the western part of the state, you'd have these patches of open country, some of it even including like bison um, grazing it. And so a lot of these patches of prairie that were in the middle of the woods got plowed under to be farmland. Um, and so a lot of the species that are prairie peninsula species are endangered in PA. So small rattlesnakes called massasaugas are an example of that. Um, and then uh, Kirtland snakes is another one. Kirtland snakes, one of the funny things about them is that they're particularly easy to find in certain Midwestern cities. Um, so that you could, you know, maybe there are some sites in more natural areas too where you can find them, but everyone sort of knows about them as being easy to find in like Cincinnati or Louisville um, or other places. When me and Mike did our Midwest trip and we did successfully see the Kirtland's Warbler, yes. we did uh, flip nice. boards in Indianapolis. You did? On the way back, looking for Kirtland's. What was this? Two years ago. Oh, because I actually stopped in Indianapolis. This is a good segue. So last summer, I did a trip. I was really heading out for other reasons, but on the way back, I'm like, I'm going to hit some Midwestern cities and look for Kirtland snakes. And so I stopped in Indianapolis, and I actually went to a, star, a historic site in Indianapolis and found nothing. Oh, um, well. <laughs> there you go. I know. And so then I... Um, um, anyhow, so so... I also, on the way back, I stopped and, um, and hit some historic sites in Pittsburgh. And this is the great segue about PA, where we live, um, is that the sites, most of the sites in Pennsylvania are in Allegheny County, which is like greater Pittsburgh um, in southwest Pennsylvania. And so the sort of, and they haven't been spotted in Pennsylvania for 50 years. So there's kind of... You sort of say, hey, maybe they're extinct by now in Pennsylvania, but I don't know that people have been looking that hard lately. Uh, and so there's part of what you'll hear about in the next couple segments is, are, is about efforts to try to find them. And, um, you know, every time I'm back in Pittsburgh for work, like I'm calling my friends who, are, who actually know where they used to be found and they tell me, hey, check this area out, you know, see what you see, try to find them. 
Um, and so I hope that 2015 is the year that we end the Kirtland snake drought in Pennsylvania. Um, all right, so what I'll say is that the next dude we're going to talk to, um, that I talked to, is Peter. He's from Columbus, Ohio, where I actually grew up. Um, and he is now studying environmental education out in Oregon. And he might be even more into Kirtland's, well, no, he is way more into Kirtland snakes than I am. Um, my obsession is new. His is long burning. We're going to hear all about it. Um, so I, I came across your pictures and this sort of research around um, just looking, trying to figure out where I might be able to turn up some urban urban Kirtland snakes. It didn't work out, but hey, this, this is what, you, what always happens with these things is you spend like your first couple trips or first trip figuring out where the hell everything is, um, and then maybe actually find something the second time. I don't know. And you um, will find them. You will find you will find urban Kirtland snakes if you if you dig enough and you look, you'll find them. It just is going to take. There a you go. See, I've gone to places where I know they are and gone there, you know, ten times and you know, time nine or something, you find them and you flip the same so that's, rock every time. And that's but that's really heartening because the other part of the story is that if you look at the range map for Kirtland snakes, there's this like one blotch like discontinuous with the rest of the range that's it's basically on top of Pittsburgh. <laughs> so, and uh, I take part in the PA Herp Atlas project, and um, one of the guys who runs it was just outside of Pittsburgh, and I got went out with him, and then he's also since then fed me sort of historical locations for Kirtland where they were caught, you know, like 70 years ago or something. So every time I go to Pittsburgh now, I'm sort of scouting another spot to see what we can find. And like you're saying, it's going to take a few visits, but we're I think we're... Little by little, I think we're figuring out where it looks good. But it would be no, and I hear this that they're sort of spring and fall species. Um, Yeah, but even that, it's it's not. um, I used to think April and May was it, and it's not. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's June. It just it depends on how humid it is and how rainy it is, and you know the soil temperature and the specific site. I mean, it's, they're crazy snakes. They're absolutely crazy snakes. That's why I love them so, so describe for me what a Kirtland snake looks like for people who've never seen one before. They're spectacular. They're the most gorgeous snakes I've seen in the U.S. I, the top is, is less relevant. It's the belly, the, uh, the ventral side that's so amazing because they've got this bright white patch right on their throat, and then they've got this just row of, beautiful pink, I mean, just pink, 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 right down the middle with these dark black blotches, these little dots on either side, kind of parallel to the pink, and, um, you know, on top they look cool and they don't look like any other snake you've you've ever seen, but it's really the the ventral side that's just so amazing, they're just, I mean, it's almost a disservice to the snake to take a picture of one and not take one of of its belly. There's just there's just something about them. I've seen them, I've seen them um, really drab and covered in mud and not that attractive. But still, you flip them over and it's just like a it's like a jewel. They're they're just really really pretty snakes. The biggest one I've ever seen. Um, I actually have a picture of it on my Flickr page. Is a, a huge uh, gravid female from the Dayton, Ohio area, and it was probably maybe a little bit shy of two feet, but it was fat. It was full of babies, and that was definitely by far the biggest one I've ever seen. Most of the ones I see um, are about probably, I don't know, 11 inches, 12 inches. I think it's, I've seen so, them all the way down to about 4 inches, little babies. 
if we're going to use this idea that there's sort of there's sort of natural habitat, maybe there's urban habitat. Um, like, what kind of areas have you found them in sort of what we would say natural habitat, like out in the, the sort of quote unquote wild? Yeah, the first the first curling snake I ever saw, I was 11 years old, and it was it had just been um, smashed. Um, someone had, had stepped on its head to kill it. It was on a um, on a boardwalk at a nature preserve, and it's a nature preserve that goes through just a really oh, come high on. quality bend. Yeah, I was oh I was I cried. <laughs> I was really upset. Uh, it just happened. It had just been killed, and that was the first one seen at that particular preserve in a lot of years. But it's, it is this high-quality, emergent sedge meadow with alkaline, you know, alkaline fen, just what you think of when you think of a really high-quality fen. And what's really cool is that years later, uh, when I was 18, I was in that fen, and there was a piece of tin that had been put out there by herpetologists. And, and in mid-November, I flipped an adult curtland at that same site. So, nice. Um, yeah, and I've looked all over at other natural populations. Um, another, actually, come to think of it, there's two more sites where I've seen them um, in a natural population. It's it's kind of cheating because I found them under tin, but one of the sites was a kind of reclaimed wetland. It, it used to be a fen complex. Now it's kind of a lake, sort of a fen, and in a almost a swamp forest situation. I've, I've seen a few on different occasions under tins there. And then on another occasion, um, that site by Dayton where you got that big crowd of females was a basically just surrounded by subdivisions, and there's this little field, and there are these artificial wetlands there. And there's these planks that go out into the wetland to access it, and under one of those planks was the big crowd of females. So, and so all I'm gonna the others are interrupt. Been urban. So interrupt real quick, and just for reference for people who aren't into herping, um, yeah. when you say finding something under tin, what we're talking about is that is that people who either study herps professionally or amateurs who just like to find them will sometimes put out um, pieces of metal uh, and sometimes pieces of wood to to serve as artificial cover, and then you, the, the snakes will like to hide under them, and then you can look under them and find the snakes. So as we're talking, I'm like thinking of all the things that are like inside lingo. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it all makes sense to me. You know? <laughs> but, yeah. So uh, so now talk a little bit about kind of like um, the characteristics of urban spots where you have found them. So I guess we're we're not just being paranoid. I'll, this was for the listeners. I guess we're not just being paranoid that you know or being cagey that, that herpers are are often, especially with sensitive species quite cautious about revealing details of where we find them because we're worried that poachers might come in and, and take the and sort of clean out a population. We're worried that um, someone who's less careful than we are might somehow damage the habitat or, or do something else. Um, and so we're we're often very, very, and I think it's a good practice, pretty cagey about where things are. We might be specific about characteristics, but vague about actual locations. So go ahead. So what kind of like urban spots do you find them in? Well, um, I so I had this report. Um, I requested a report um, when I was in high school um, about Kirtland snake surveys in Ohio. And one of the first things I realized when I looked through this report is, oh, my gosh, most of the places these snakes are found are these places right in town, um, right in places like Toledo and Dayton and um, Cincinnati. So I went down to Cincinnati 
when I was still in high school and went to this Wait, one Peter, site. where are you from? I'm from Columbus, Ohio. Wait, we're in Columbus. I'm from uh, Worthington. Well, I grew up in Dublin and Worthington. Oh, I, I grew up in Bexley. <laughs> are you serious? You, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm wow, sorry. I forgot the whole element of my biography. So back to the story. So you're you're a kid. You got this list. Um, you get this report, and you start driving around looking for him. Go ahead, take it from there. Yeah. Um, and one of the first places um, that intrigued me was this park in Cincinnati, and I, I was familiar with the park. Um, it's just kind of right in Cincinnati, and so I went to this park, and I took my prom date at the time. And we looked and looked and looked. and That's so classic that you took your date. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm such a cool guy. And um, I, um, I flipped um, this this old piece of concrete, and there was a baby Kirtland underneath. And the habitat at this particular spot, I've seen them in a few places in urban Cincinnati. One of the characteristics, well, where I found this was right on the edge. It was right on the edge of kind of a mowed field and then a, a dense honeysuckle thicket. And the thing about Cincinnati is that even in these urban sites, there's a lot of um, limestone exposure with crevices that go down really deep and retain moisture. And in my opinion, that's what is required to find Kirtland snakes in an urban setting. Huh. Uh, if, you look, if you look kind of at the different areas they've been found, even up in Toledo where there is no limestone, there's these really, a lot of rock and a lot of crevices. Um, because in the wild, if you think about it, they live in these crayfish burrows. So um, right. I think that there's a linkage there. But anyway, um, right, basically, you know, urban Cincinnati just so grown over with, with honeysuckle and there's trash everywhere. But that's good for people like us because there's a ton of cover to flip. And yeah. uh, seeing the Kirtlands in the open is almost impossible. Um, you can, but usually you have to flip something and Interesting. I'm actually looking at the picture right now on my on my Flickr. The most interesting Kirtland's site in Cincinnati is one that is actually not on that survey list or anything. It is a. I was just driving down the road. Actually, I was in school and I was on my way to a concert with some friends, and we're driving down this road, and there's just this vacant lot in pretty much down almost downtown Cincinnati, and it's probably an acre in size, and there's a little kind of pole in. And just trash and uh, tires and all these things dumped, and it, it's just this tiny site. And I was like, "Hey guys, can we stop?" And they all complain, <laughs> "Why would we do this? Why are we stopping here? Cincinnati is, is not always the safest place, especially the area we were in." We stopped and get out, and we flipped for maybe ten minutes, and turned up three curling snakes just from That's a amazing. Yeah, sadly, a lot of these vacant lots where I have seen them, um, some of them have since been kind of, you know, developed and plowed under. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in, in, these, in these urban sites, uh, you kind of just look. Your accounts of, like, finding them in, in urban areas in the Midwest, it, it sort of gives you hope for, like, the Pittsburgh area, you know? Um, yeah. Because you're – because we're going to these sites. Honestly, the guy's looking at – the guy I know in Pittsburgh is, is very – he's smart, good herper. Um, but I don't think he's ever – he hasn't really looked for them in, in places where we know that they are so we can reference against actual habitat. So, like, he's going out, and, and he's like, yeah, I don't see any crayfish burrows. I don't think they're going to be here anymore. 
And it's really hopeful to hear that, like, no, 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 you don't need the crayfish bros. <laughs> so, no one knows anything about these snakes. People don't know what they do in the winter. People don't know what they do in the summer. There's still uncertainties about what they're eating and what, you know, how they're thermoregulating all these things. Are they ever surface active? And if they are, when? One of the things that you should apply when you're looking for them is that no one knows anything and it's the stuff that you pick up. You know, go to places where they've been found and, and find them. And then, you know, just kind of look around. Yeah. I mean, just, there's hope. You can, I, I'll bet you, <laughs> and I'll bet you could turn them up in Pittsburgh if you, if you looked hard enough. Uh, what we're getting into now, we're talking to Brandon Rue um, about Pennsylvania efforts to sort of rediscover the Kirtland snake. Um, and Kirtland snakes in Pennsylvania. Um, and uh, a couple things. We're going to reference a guy named Sherman Minton. Um, Sherman Minton was sort of like a, a major figure in Midwestern herpetology. I know. Everybody's like, ooh, Midwestern herpetology. Um, but for those of us who are herpers, that's a big deal. Um, <laughs> and, herpin ain't easy. Herpin ain't easy. Exactly. Herpin ain't Thank easy. you, big, big daddy Tony over there. <laughs> Um, and so with that, I'm going to pause our lovely discussion. You can tell I've had a few drinks by now. Um, and we're going to listen to Brandon talk very soberly about Kirtland snakes. My name is Brandon Rue. Uh, I am the, uh, president at the Mid-Atlantic Center for Herpetology and Conservation. We have the Pennsylvania Amphibian and Reptile Survey, which is a more uh, tech-savvy atlas project for amphibians and reptiles in Pennsylvania, which should be running until about 2022. Give us an introduction to, to what is a Kirtland snake. A uh, Kirtland snake is a, it's, it's an odd little uh, critter. It was first uh, found, I, I think, in 1855. And, and it's found largely in the Midwest. It was historically found in about 100, 150 counties in um, the United States, ranging from uh, you know, Pennsylvania uh, west. And currently, it's believed to only be extant in about uh, 20 to 25 counties in the whole country. So it was recently, when I say recent, the last few years, uh, it was petitioned for federal listing by the Center for Biological Diversity based on this apparent um, significant decline. That said, they're very, very difficult to find. Um, historically, when you read uh, so, uh, uh, works by folks like Sherman Minton, they, they had days when they would go out and they'd pull over along a road cut and they'd find 40 or 50 uh, Kirtland snakes. That doesn't really happen anymore. Long periods of time can go in between when you find them. And they're, they're really small. They're about a foot long. Um, they have reddish bellies. Uh, some folks confuse them for red-bellied snakes. They're quite distinctive. They have interesting uh, black spotting on the flanks and uh, also uh, on the dorsum, you know, larger uh, black blotches. And... When you see them and they get startled, they will actually flatten their bodies out. So they get it really thin, almost like ribbons. They're found still in places in the Midwest, and there are a few spots where you can reliably find them. But it's almost as if the Kirtland snake finds you. <laughs> you, you can, uh, um, you know, I've seen Kirtland snakes in some very odd places. You know, some of those cities you mentioned previously. You actually, you hit three of the big ones historically for Kirtlands with Cincinnati, Indianapolis, and and uh, Pittsburgh. And um, you know, I've seen them in in Cincinnati, and I've seen them in Indianapolis. And you know, I've I've looked uh, 
in many places where they're historically found, seemingly pristine places that have lots of nice habitat, and you never see a Kirtland snake. And I, I remember the uh, kind of the most interesting observation. I was uh, on the banks of the Ohio River uh, by Cincinnati, actually across it in Kentucky, and <clears throat> the Ohio there has all of these huge boulders, you know, rocks that they've, you know, these giant modified rocks that they put uh, down along the riverbank. And so we were walking, and I think I was out for uh, uh, the nightlife there, and walking by the trail that McAdam Road, basically, for pedestrians, and right at the top of these rocks, and I, I kicked a, a bag of McDonald's food and, that somebody had thrown there, and underneath it was a Kirtland snake. <laughs> there was no seemingly suitable habitat anywhere near where I was located. Oh, and so, uh, you know, they pop up in strange places, like you, you previously mentioned. You find them in urban lots. That used to be quite common. That's changing. You really don't have open lots in cities much anymore. Um, yeah. And so it, it's difficult to imagine, but even 60 years ago, you had farm fields and weedy lots and things like that, even in cities. You know, in the 1950s, you know, there were farms at the edge of Philadelphia. You go to northeast Philadelphia by the airport, and there were farms there right, still. Right, And people right. would buy uh, produce, and the farmers would come down in their wagons, you know, in, into Philadelphia. I mean, that, that, they do that now, but, you know, you have to come in on a vehicle, and, you know, your, your, your produce is coming from a much further distance. So as these lots are used and the land use changes, the Kirtland snakes seem to be disappearing as well. And we haven't seen a Kirtland snake in Pennsylvania since 1965. So next year, wow. 2015, will be the 50th anniversary of the last Kirtland snake sighting. Oh, man. And, and typical standard techniques that are utilized to try to discover fossorial snakes don't really work with a Kirtland. So folks all over the place, I know Andy Odom out at the Toledo Zoo, he um, you know went to some of the old spots where you know, Roger Conant has found Kirtlands, and he threw boards and things down, and, and he found one Kirtland snake repeatedly under the board. She was a, a capture-happy snake, but that, that that's it. But other people have seen them. They've tried to do drift fence studies uh, where you put a you know fencing in the ground, whether it's silt fence or aluminum flashing, and you put pitfalls in and various other traps, um, you know, to capture the snakes. And they don't show up. In, in one instance, they actually caught a Kirtland snake under a piece of bark near the drift fence, but they never once showed up in the trap lines. <laughs> they're, they're, they're very difficult to find. And, you know, there are a few places where they still seem to be fairly abundant. I've been to them out in Ohio and Indiana. And, you know, every two or three times you go to the site, you can find Kirtlands, and sometimes you can find quite a few. Of course, you know, I've been here since I was out there. but you know, and you had mentioned before the limestone habitats in Cincinnati, for instance, and how other people might have a different understanding of what Kirtland snake habitat is. Sure. That, that's, the, that's the case. Um, there's no <laughs> – folks have tried to describe Kirtland snake habitat, and it, it's all over the place. It's the kind of thing that, that can drive someone who's obsessive absolutely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know – what you're talking about, about, uh, you know, inferred absence and things like that, you know, we can infer absence, but only after a body of work has been done, in my opinion, to show that the Kirtland snake is potentially extirpated. Because, really, some folks have looked here and there through the years, but there really hasn't been a significant effort to specifically go after the Kirtland snake and to really hit the sites, hit them repeatedly, um, and say, you know what, 
through these rigorous surveys, we've not encountered any Kirtland snakes through the course of however many years. You know, you know then you can come to that conclusion. But, yeah. you know, I'm a big fan of chasing ghosts and of resurrecting <laughs> the dead. And, you know, we've done that. And it's been happening in Pennsylvania, and it's pretty exciting. But I think the other trick about Kirtland snakes that, that I wonder about is that I'm sure you have this experience, but I haven't. Anyone who knows a little bit about snakes has the experience where, or let's say the locals, even the knowledgeable locals, people who are gardeners or people who are just general naturalists or whoever, are like, will tell you, oh, yeah, I see baby garter snakes in my backyard all the time. And then, like, you look at them and, oh, they're brown snakes. The difference species in a garter snake. And if you're used to looking at a lot of snakes, it's it's pretty obvious difference, but not if you're not looking at a lot of snakes. And so I, yeah. Kirtland, like, to you and me, they scream something different. But I bet, I bet, like, 9 out of 10 people who see one are like, oh, it's a garter snake. Or, oh, it's a red belly snake, like you said. Um, and so it's reasons I, 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 I hold out hope that um, we should not take the lack of reporting of them as, as definitive indication of their, as definitive proof that they're absent. But, you know, when we talk about them last being found almost 50 years ago in uh, the Pittsburgh area, Allegheny County and, and the few neighboring counties, you know, were they, do you know if back then they were being found in what we would think of as urban or suburban areas? I mean, like, because I'll, I'll go to a spot now and it's, you look at the map, it's some guy's backyard. Or it's like, it's a it's a park surrounded by houses. Yeah. And so were those more rural then? I mean, have is there the sense that the habitat has changed a lot since they were last being observed, or they were being observed in the backyards of houses that have been built 40 years prior? Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of both. And so if you look at the records in the 1960s, and, and you know, there were a few, you know, the last record was, was recorded by Jack McCoy in 1965, and, you know, basically a, a lot next to a mall next to a highway. Yeah. So uh, it was fairly urbanized. Now, that lot that was there is gone. You know, there are some lots nearby um, that, uh, you know, are, are more wooded now. Uh, but, yeah, it was very, very urban, uh, e- even in the 1960s, where, where a lot of these critters were found, the individuals, they were you know, really in the city. And one of the records, I think, from 1960 was was found in a small urban lot that was actually developed that had houses. It was in a, a you know, residence in a yard in a neighborhood, you know, like you would find in many places uh, today in Pittsburgh or in Philadelphia, you know, little uh, bits of grass and, and, and things like that. So... You know, there are some land use changes, but they were definitely found in, in pretty urban settings. Now, a lot of the records, you know, they're fairly old. Uh, the first specimen was found in Pennsylvania, I think, in 1897. And, you know, Pittsburgh in 1897 is a lot different than Pittsburgh in 2014. Uh, no, it's been a while, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you consider that within that same century, you know, Pittsburgh was a frontier town, basically. In the early 19th century, uh, you know, it's not too far removed from that. How would people get involved if they're interested in getting involved with survey projects? Lots of uh, opportunities to, to do that. You go to the uh, website, www.machack.org, M-A-C-H-A-C.org, or you could go to uh, paherpsurvey.org. And <clears throat> we have contact forms there, so somebody can send us an email, they can... Uh, uh, give us a phone call. Contact forms are a pretty good way to stay in communication. You just fill out a little information, and 
who you are and what you're interested in doing. And we have lots of projects that we rely very heavily on volunteers for. And, and, and that's kind of one of our basic components, and it's a very important component to a lot of our projects is, is citizen science. And so, you know, currently we have about 1,100 volunteers that help us on our projects. And, you know, it's as simple as folks going out and signing up for the PARS project, uh, which, you know, the Herp's, Herp Atlas, and uh, going out and looking for some critters in their backyard and taking some photos with their uh, phone and uploading them to the site and recording some information. Also, I'll, I'll also just record a little comment here that, that who's listening to this or happens to be in the Pittsburgh area or anywhere in Pennsylvania. Any snake you see, <laughs> send in the record. And whatever you see, even if you're not sure, I'm sure Brandon or, or anyone else who's on the receiving end um, will notice if you're sending in a Curlin snake. Uh, you could be that hero who stops it at 50 years, right? That would be great. And we're interested in all the records. So, you know, and if you don't know what it is, True. don't don't feel embarrassed. And additionally, make sure you don't pick up snakes if you don't know what they are. Um, ah, good point. So that's good a- point. Ow! Citizen science! I'll say that, that I have the, the phone app for the, the Herp survey, and it's a piece of cake. Um, it's what I've been using now just for my own record keeping. Uh, but um, Wait, did that make herping easy? Did it make herping easy? No. It made <laughs> documenting herping easy. Herping is still hard work. So, no, herping ain't easy. Yeah, All right. ain't easy. You know, I think it was really uh, a really great part of the story when you talked about... Look, uh, seeing a very endangered thing underneath a very not endangered thing, the McDonald's yeah. bag. Because McDonald's, that's ubiquitous. Yeah. Uh, the snakes, <laughs> not so much. And again, this is a species that's now been petitioned for endangered status under the Endangered Species Act because it's, been, it's in decline, but you can still find it in certain cities, um, and we hope Pittsburgh. So. That's good, that's good. Um, I like how, uh, towards the end, you guys started talking about you know the importance of having, like, a lot of volunteers for scientific needs, right? You know, boosting right. scientific literacy, having that uh, citizen science, you know, by documenting these snakes. I think that that's you know, again, I've said this already, but it's truly just a great testimony to you know the benefit of involving people, you know, general public in scientific. Um, right. You don't have to pursuits. be in the the Pennsylvania amphibian, and I should mention, I am the Philadelphia coordinator for the Pennsylvania Amphibian and Reptile Survey. Um, Represent. I know it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I do much. Um, we, I lead some walks, um, and if you're a volunteer, contact me, um, and I can hook you up um, with the with the website, with the app, everything, um, so that you too can report your herping, your reptile amphibian finds in Pennsylvania. You guys want to wrap up? Yeah. I okay. Closing statements. Like no, I think this I think. <laughs> Uh, this is why I think herping is superior to birding. No. Yeah. Um, oh. No, I'm not going to go there. Um, you know what I'm saying? It's like, you look. You look down, I look up. It's all good. <laughs> so we got we cover the whole world that way. Wow. Um, that was deep. Yeah, it is. Was, wow. Tony's deep. Um, <laughs> but the I think that the, this is, you know, our theme this time was looking at um, critters that are um, that are under your nose, but you might not realize it. Uh, and um, but wait, there's this one thing that I forgot to mention. What did you forget to mention, Tony? That when I grew up, I used to play in an abandoned lot, um, and I would flip circuit boards and other, from those factory circuit boards. I would flip like you know 
plywood and circuit boards and stuff. By the way, that's like now considered toxic waste. But go ahead. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is where I grew up. I didn't, you know, I grew up and you know, I grew up playing. In, you know, a, I my cut my teeth like flipping boards and a band of lots in Philly, and that's yeah. just how I grew up. And and um, but I would always um find you know brown snakes. Yeah. And Billy used to do like a little like citizen science citizen science. That project on like um, tracking brown totally. snakes, and uh, I used to catch them. And you know, when you're when you're a little kid, you don't. I really, love brown snakes. Yeah. You don't real. You know, you want to make everything your pet, which is a terrible idea. But I would name every one of these brown snakes Billy. Aww. So well, we were meant to be. Um, but the next episode is going to be about oh the Pier Fifty Three Skinks. Oh, it's going to be an off, a really cool episode. Um, we're going to have Mike McGraw. We're going to have Hannah Waters. And we're going to talk about the skinks of um, South Philly. Flip snakes every day. Um, they're working on t-shirts. You should say, herpin ain't easy. Herpin ain't easy, exactly.